we don't pay our bills because we want to, right? If, if I could not pay my bills and save the money and not get kicked out of my house and not have my electricity turned off and not have food magically show up in the fridge, I wouldn't pay my bills. Why? Why bother, right? Save the money. We do this because the pain of what we'll lose if we don't is greater than the fear of what we're doing. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, today I get to interview Walt, the Hawaiian shirt guru key, the man that's coming to us from Florida. This is going to be a really fun interview for me in particular, because we're going to be talking about for sale by owners, prospecting, listings, investments, all the things that the path that I've gone down, Walt, you've gone down too. So we're going to get to have some fun conversations. But for the audience, the first thing we're going to tap into today is how in the world did you get to six figures in your first full year of real estate? Yeah, it's super easy. Everybody can do it. I don't know why we all haven't done it already. Uh, <laughs> so a little backstory, right? So I got my license while I was active duty Navy. And so the accomplishment of six figures in a first full license year is pretty good for any agent, but I did it while also holding down a full-time job with the United States military. Uh, so when I say anybody can do it, I mean that, right? And most people didn't have the demands on their time that I had. Um, there was a few things that absolutely any agent can put into their business practice that will get them there, right? And, and we all want to be the greatest of all time, right? We all want to be the GOAT. Here, here's a GOAT. I'm going to give you a quick acronym for all your agents to grab a hold of and really make this work for them. G goals. You have to have a clear vision of where you want your business to go so that you can make a truly audacious, worthwhile yearly goal. And then you need to take that a step farther and you need to break that yearly goal down into an actual monthly milestone so that you can look at your business every single month, make sure you're on track. And if you're not, you still have time to course correct to hit that goal in the end. So that's a big part of it, right? You've got to do that. The second piece is the O, right? Opportunities. Business does not create itself in this industry. So you have to go out there and create opportunities to connect with people, build great relationships, and then figure out how do I serve this person as best I can in that relationship piece, right? It's not about how do I close the deal? It's not about how do I make the money? It's how do I serve and solve the problem that they have, right? And then we do that through a action, consistent and disciplined active prospecting has to be part of your daily business routine. If you're going to create those opportunities that turn into business. And then last but not least, in order to feed that action and those opportunities, you got to have the right time management. So that's the T and go. You have to sit down, prioritize what you're going to do, when you're going to do it day by day, hour for hour, and you have to get after it. But if you do those four things, manage your time properly with the right active prospecting styles and you're disciplined and consistent, you will create the opportunities that accomplish your goals, whatever they are. So that's the magic sauce right there, man. That's the secret to six figures in your first year. Go be the goat. Thank you, man. Thank you for that. Thank you for your service, by the way. Uh, I'd like to get to know a My little pleasure. bit about what you what your job was in the Navy. Uh, yeah, so it's funny. So when I when I was 15 years old, I hatched this idea that I was going to join the Navy, become a Navy SEAL, and spend the rest of my life just blowing stuff up and jumping out of airplanes. And as I was going through training to become a Navy SEAL, which I did accomplish, and it was a great feat, and I, and I really enjoyed that time getting my teeth kicked in, 
Um, shortly after uh, I went to my first SEAL team, I wound up getting married. And then I quickly realized the dream I had at 15 of being a cool guy and single and blowing stuff up, it wasn't as cool now that I had a wife and I wanted to spend some time. And so that slowly got me to a point where I transitioned out of Naval Special Warfare and I just went Intel because that was my background to begin with. And I spent the rest of my career in, in the Intel career. At first, that really was mind-numbingly boring for me, right? To go from uh, a Navy SEAL to an Intel guy is a big shift in the speed and the operational tempo. And so I had to find the cool guy jobs in Intel. So I still managed to do some fun stuff where I would deploy overseas and I would question people. We kick in some doors, we shoot some guns, but I did it a little bit quieter, right? And, and not so much uh, in the field that I was in. So that was me. I did, a, I did 21 years in the Navy. As I was winding down the career and I decided to retire, I said, well, I better figure out what I want to do when I grow up. I had been investing in real estate for years because as the Navy moved me every two to three years, right, I'm up, up, uprooting and I'm moving somewhere else. I bought a house. I was not going to rent for two decades. And so I became an investor where we were buying live-in investments. I knew that I needed to buy in the right neighborhood so I can turn this into a rental, or I had to buy it in the right condition so that I could do a live-in flip and maximize my equity when I sold it just a couple of years later. So regardless of what the market was doing, I was putting myself in the right position. And so the house I sit in right now is the 14th house that I've actually bought. There was one or two times where I rented in between, but so 14 houses inside of 20 years, that's a lot of moving. And I will tell you that there was never a time where I sat back and go, man, I wish I wouldn't have bought that house. It's always the right time to buy if you buy correctly, right? You analyze your situation and say, I have to be smart with this. Um, it's always a good investment. So let's talk about buying right. So is it really a matter of looking at the property and saying, hey, if I move out of this property, the rents will cover the mortgage? How do you know if you bought right? Yeah, so it depends on the strategy, right? So for example, I've had uh, I've done live-in flips, if you will, where I knew like I'm just going to sell this in a couple of years. I've done long-term rentals. I've done short-term rentals. So depending on the strategy, those numbers might look different. But you have to sit down and analyze your numbers and say, um, one, what dollar amount am I comfortable with in my pocket every month when this is over? And here's here's the funny thing, right? So. So many gurus out there will tell you, oh, you need 70% of ARV minus the, the rehab if you're going to flip. And you, you should never even look at an investment unless it's at least this hundreds of dollars a month in cash flow. Well, here's what we know because we can study history. With the exception of 2009, which was an anomaly based on a financial crash, in any five-year period, real estate is up. But inflation does what inflation does, right? So every year, rents go up. We know this. So if I want to get in the investment game, but right now I just, I have to buy a something I have to live in. And maybe in two years, maybe in three years, I sell it. You don't have to run those numbers quite that tight because when you're living in it, your mortgage is going to be locked at the purchase price from two years ago, three years ago. And every year you're in it, the rent market is going to go up, which automatically puts more spread, uh, more meat on the bone for you when you move. Now, so if you want to get into the investment market and you're having a rough time, maybe your community just doesn't have really great deals, buy a decent deal, buy an okay deal, buy a deal. And as long as you're not losing money every month, it's a great deal because next year you're going to make more. The, the next year you're going to make more. 
So I don't really hold to the, well, it's got to be this metric. It's got to be this cash flow. It's got to be this much ARV. I'll run the numbers individually and I'll go for the, for the amount of money I'm putting in on this and the amount of cash flow I'm going to get initially, is it worth holding for a year or two to really start making some decent cash flow? And usually the answer is yes for me. Yeah. Not sure if that answers your questions, but that's how I look at it. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously it's an individual decision. People need to understand how much they have in the bank, how, how much income they're making, how comfortable they are, et cetera. Now you were a Navy SEAL. I mean, that's obviously considered to be one of the, if not the greatest mental toughness, you know, barriers in, in, in the world. And so if you look at your journey into becoming a SEAL, how much of that mental toughness did you possess prior to going to BUDS and how much has come afterwards? Well, I would say that at some level, I, I it's not really something you analyze when you're 15 years old, right? Yeah. But at some point I had to have a level of mental toughness because I didn't quit. Right. Yeah. And I, and I now, right. 20 years later, I joke to people when they're like, oh my gosh, that's so, how'd you do that? I'm like, well, I was just too dumb not to quit. Right. I just, <laughs> I saw, I just, I enjoyed the misery. Um, there is absolutely a level of mental toughness. So as an example, right, uh, when you talk about the physical versus the mental, when I arrived at uh, SEAL training at BUDS, I was uh, 125 pounds. Everyone there loses weight. When I graduated, I was 132 pounds. Whoa. Because I was very disciplined, very consistent. I would wake up at midnight, even though the alarm was going off at 4.35 in the morning, I would wake up at midnight and drink a slim, fast shake to put extra calories in my body because I knew at 125 pounds, I couldn't afford to lose weight, right? I couldn't. And so I had a guy, uh, one of the instructors there actually told me when I left, and I don't know how concrete it is, but you know, they're the instructors, they would probably know better than me. When we graduated on graduation day, he came over and he shook my hand like they usually do. And he said, you know, I'm pretty damn sure you're the smallest guy to ever graduate buds. Hmm. And I'm like, you know, well, <laughs> check one for me. That's a neat right. little victory, right? That's not what I was planning on, but rock it out. Um, so there's definitely an aspect of mental toughness, right? Cause right. When you're 125 pounds surrounded by studs, yeah, you can't hide. Yeah. Right. There's no blending in. They're picking you're, on you. You are anatomically yeah. different. You, the spotlight's on you're, yeah. you're going to get every, instructor there that wants to say, well, this kid shouldn't be here. Let's make him go away. Right. You're going to get that attention. So there's definitely an aspect of mental toughness. Um, but you know, I, it's just as hard in the teams as it is getting into the teams. Yeah. They, they, they say when you're going through buds, you're going to be just as cold, just as tired, just as miserable when you do this job. And at, you know, at the time you're like, yeah, whatever. They're just saying that. So we quit. Right. And then you get into the teams and you start doing your first platoon workup and you realize this, this is cold and wet and this boy, yeah, it still sucks. And you actually learn to embrace what we call embrace the suck, right? You actually learn to turn that misery into motivation. And so you start to feed off of the mental process of it does the harder, the better right? There's no way that you can break me because I can outwork you. I can outwork myself. My mind can outwork my body. Bring it. And so, you know, when you carry that into the rest of your life, you're, you're, you're naturally going to be more inclined to just grind and get after it and go to work. Yeah. And so essentially the benefit in the work world, right, is that you get to mentally decide what is going to be the strategy that's going to make me the most money, that's going to get me the end result. And then you're not having to fight yourself on not wanting to do it because you've already put the training in to learn, 
Like I don't do what I like. I do what's necessary. I mean, is that fair to say? Yeah. So as a simple analogy, right. The, the, maybe the users don't say, I use food as an analogy, right? Everyone's like, what do you want for dinner? And I'm like, Oh, I'm not really in the mood for this or, or this tastes better than that. I don't care what my food tastes like. It's fuel for my body so I can go work. Right. If I eat something that tastes great, awesome. Sure. Whatever. It's a treat. But I don't plan my meals around what tastes amazing. I plan my meals around what do I need to fuel my body so I can get out there and go to work and, and do what I want to do. All right. It's a, it's a, it's just a part of the mental process. Right. And there's a lot of discipline that goes into that. There's a lot of that consistency that I talk about in my book about, like, I have an entire chapter just on discipline. We are a spoiled, rotten generation. We, we, like, we truly are. And one of the biggest problems that agents face is not even a knowledge gap. Yes, there is absolutely a huge knowledge gap in our industry. No doubt about that. That's why I wound up in a coach in the coaching world, because I'm trying to share the knowledge. But just as just as large of a gap from the knowledge gap is the execution gap. We don't want to get up and go to work in a disciplined and consistent manner in order to achieve the success that we would like to have. And if I could just teach agents, I don't care what you do. There's lots of ways to do it, but you have to do it consistently. Get up and go to work. And you will get results from that. That's that's a hard psychological piece to break because we've just had such an easy lifestyle. Um, and most people have never really had to struggle to get the basics covered. And that level of grind just isn't there sometimes. How much does someone need to physically, like with their body, struggle to create mental toughness? So... Different people might answer that differently. There's a lot of little individual things that a person can do to slowly start building up uh, mental toughness. Right? As an example, right? And 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 I make zero money from the from the guy in his book. Uh, anyone who wants to talk about mental toughness and how you build that into your life, go read "Can't Hurt Me" by David Goggins. Also a former Navy SEAL, but here's the cool thing about David Goggins: when he made the decision, unlike me, who is already skinny. He was several hundred pounds and incredibly unhealthy. Now he's an ultra marathoner. He's a, he's a motivational speaker. And a lot of what he talks about is put yourself into situations you don't want to be in because it forces you to say, you know what, this will suck, but I don't care. I'm making a decision here to do it anyway. And so something as simple as I'm going to take a cold shower in the morning. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to kill you. It's going to shock your system for 30 seconds. It's actually really beneficial for you on the, on the body system, right? the health side of that. That's actually really healthy. But the mental process of stepping into the cold shower when you know it's not going to be comfortable starts to slowly build that callus of the mental toughness, right? And you get to a point where, okay, if I can do this, what's the next thing I can do that might be harder than I'm used to, but it's worth it. Yeah. And then you just grow from that, right? You start simple. You put yourself in the situations where you have to make a decision. And the decision is, do I do it easy or do I do it better? Make the decision to do it better. And then as you get used to that, step it up at a higher level and just keep putting yourselves into bigger and bigger positions of uncomfortable so that you can grow from that. Right? And so that's really how you start to build that mental toughness aspect. What priority in your life, like if you're looking at going and making money and doing all these things, what priority should increasing mental toughness be in your priority chart? 
Well, again, I think that depends on the person. Like for me, I don't think about mental toughness, right? I, I can talk about it because obviously I realized that at some point I had it and I developed more of it. And, and that just, that framed who I was as a person and it made me very successful and everything else. But I don't really put a lot of priority on mental toughness because I put a priority on budget my calendar and go to work. And that's at this point, it's just natural for me. But if you're thinking about uh, if you find yourself talking to yourself and you think, say things like, this is going to suck. I'm uncomfortable doing that. I'm not sure if I can X, Y, Z, then absolutely. Maybe some, some mental toughness needs to be in your, in your routine because you're telling yourself lies about what you can accomplish. And that's all mental. And none of it is grounded in reality. None of it is based in fact. Um, I have that conversation a lot when I teach cold calling to agents because uh, in my time management class, right, I talk about goal setting and prioritizing and calendar management. In my quality conversations, how to build relationships that build your business course, one of the first things I talk about is the psychology of fear and how it's overblown in our mind before we pick up that phone, we're petrified. Right. And we, we blow it up as because it's an unknown and it's human nature is if it's unknown, I'm afraid. But we blow up this fear in our own heads about how bad this is going to go and how people are going to scream at us. They're going to threaten to sue us and all this silliness. When in reality, none of that actually occurs, but you're hyping yourself out of success because that mental toughness isn't there. And you're not willing to say, you know what, this might suck. I'm going to do it anyway. And you allow yourself to talk yourself out of success. It happens all the time. So what I'm hearing from you is essentially at the point where someone recognizes they have limiting beliefs or the focus of their decisions in business is based on their feelings, not on where they're wanting to go. That's the point where they need to invest deeply into absolutely. mental toughness. Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about it this way, um, uh, we, uh, me and, uh, and my, uh, my team were talking about this yesterday, and, and one of my coaching partners who runs the team with me mentioned it, and it's perfect for this. We don't pay our bills because we want to, right? If, if I could not pay my bills and save the money and not get kicked out of my house and not have my electricity turned off and not have food magically show up in the fridge, I wouldn't pay my bills. Why? Why bother, right? Save the money. We do this because the pain of what we'll lose if we don't is greater than the fear of what we're doing. So when you start thinking about that from a business perspective, from a personal development perspective, you have to think about, you know, the pain of inaction is going to be worse long-term than the, 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 in the, the immediate pain of me being uncomfortable making the call or doing the thing or you know, filming the YouTube content or going live on my Facebook, even though I don't like the way I look and sound on video, I'm going to do it anyway, because I know the, the pain of my long-term inaction will significantly outweigh the short-term pain of me being a little uncomfortable until I start doing this and realize it ain't that bad. Yeah. Right. Does so makes sense. hundred percent. So basically someone comes into a business, right? Because we're talking about being a goat here setting your goals, et cetera. They set their goals, which is easy to do for almost everybody, not everybody, but almost everybody has no problem thinking about the happy ending that they want, right? They wanna be on the beach, retired, or whatever their goals are. And then the reality comes, right? That they have these limiting beliefs when they're starting to think about their action plans. So they, they work on mental toughness, et cetera. Like, let's talk about the next phases of the journey here. Like, so they're, they're working on mental toughness, then what? So, 
just, uh, oh man, you just got to take action, right? It, it, it's, there's no other way to say it. The, the action will produce a result. Now you can, you can refine the action as you go, right? Um, you can say, I'm going to cold call, right? For example, as an example, you can say, I'm going to cold call. And then you start making phone calls and you realize I'm only converting maybe 1% of the people I talk to. I should probably get better at this. Maybe I should find a better script. I should rethink my framework of what I'm going to ask and what I'm going to say, right? You can make it better as you go, but start taking the action. The inaction is what kills us. And it kills, you know, it's, it's, I think it's Newton's law. Don't quote me. I'm not a scientist, right? A body in motion will stay in motion. All right. Well, you just got to start taking some motion. Just start moving and you'll continue to move and you'll move faster and you'll move farther and you'll refine it and you'll grow and you'll develop. But you have to start taking the action in order to stay in action. Otherwise, you just sit in inaction and you get nowhere. So that, that's a huge piece of it, right? At some point, you just got to take the leap. Now, the other thing that you can do with, with this, right, if you are having a mental block, really think about what the consequences are of you not achieving your goal. Now, what I actually do is I, uh, I do it just the opposite, but, but in, in our human nature, our, our psychology, right, we are actually more inclined to do something based on the fear of what we'll lose, right? The pain we'll feel than we are the prize we'll win, right? So when you say, tell somebody to set a goal, they're talking about the prize they want to win. But in reality, if you can make some tangible negative consequence, that will hold you to your goal even more than the thing that you want to achieve. So as an example, uh, we talk about um, the end of, end of day consequences if you don't achieve what you put on your calendar, right? You plan the goals, you, you decide what the tasks are, you prioritize it out, you budget your calendar in advance for the week. And then if at the end of the day on Monday, you didn't call the amount of people that you said you call, you didn't record the content you said you would record, there should be an immediate painful consequence that you impose on yourself. And that builds the mental side, but it also is a very tangible, all right, I'm not going to keep doing this. I'm going to get my act together and I'm going to start taking that action because I don't want to feel this pain consistently anymore. Right. And so that, that human psychology of we shy away from pain more than we gravitate to pleasure. Goals are fantastic because they help give you the, the plan of action. But having a negative consequence that you impose on yourself with an accountability partner that will hold you to it can really make it move for you. It can really help. Is that something that should be done? You mentioned accountability partner. So you need to impose it on yourself, but there needs to be someone to help enforce that decision. Right. I mean, because I think a Ideally. lot of yeah, because a lot of us will say, oh, if I'm going to do this or I'm going to do this consequence and give it to the end of the day and then we give ourselves some grace. The next thing you know, right. we fall fallen so, off. So way. think about this as, as a very simple example. Let's say we were we budgeted on our calendar for the week. These are the business building activities I'm going to do. These are what is going to make me money at some point if I do them. And so the end of the day rolls around and you realize you did not do them. Well, that that consequence for your inaction might be that you have to go pay money to a charity, donate money to a cause, take your wife out to a fancy dinner that you would never want to pay for, but it's painful because you're going to pay for it anyway, right? That's actually a really good psychological consequence of if I'm not doing the activity that makes me money, I'm going to lose money. And therefore my consequence is I'm going to donate 50 bucks to my church, $100 to this charity. I'm going to give 
um, $50 to Samaritan's Purse or, you know, whatever the cause might be for you. I'm going to give away my money as a negative consequence because I didn't earn money, right? Let the punishment fit the crime, right? And that's really easy to go, well, I really can't afford that though, so I'm just going to not do the consequence. But when you tell another person, hey man, at the end of the day at 7 p.m., call me. And you ask me, did I do this many calls, this many this, this much video? Ask me, did I accomplish my goal? And if I did not, remind me that I'm telling you right now, the consequence for this inaction is that I'm going to do this. Hold me to that, please. It's really hard to argue with our, our accountability partner why we can't do the thing we already agreed we're going to do when they, when they hold you to that, right? There's an embarrassment level when you try to cop out of that at this point, right? And so it makes you take ownership of your inaction. And then you, you hurt yourself, maybe it's financially, maybe it's an embarrassment thing. And then you go, okay, I don't wanna feel that again. And again, the pain of my inaction sucks more than the pain of me making the phone call. I'm gonna start making the freaking phone calls. Yeah, and I think that's, that's really a great framework. The pain of inaction must be greater than the pain of action. Yep. So, so we set the framework and obviously I think this is a good frame to set because we're going to be talking about cold calling. We're going to be talking about for sale by owners and things of that nature, which generally the main reason people don't succeed there is simply an inability to discipline themselves mentally. So with that put aside, people are paying if they don't make the calls, et cetera. Let's get into the tactical side of how do we create six figures from things like calling for sale by owners? Yeah. So let's talk for sale. But I'm, I'm going to do two things. Right? I don't want to talk for sale by owners, but and I want people to hear this and think of it in the same vein. Right. Uh, I like to do for sale by owners and I like to call landlords that have their property for rent. Right. It'll be a similar conversation. It's something that a lot of people don't think about, something we teach in our coaching program. Um, and so what typically happens when an agent does decide to call a FISBO is their their mindset is wrong. Right. The framework of the conversation they want to have sets them up for success or failure. And in most cases, failure. And here's why. Um, think about the human nature. Right? Think about the psychology of this. A FISBO has made one firm decision. I don't want to list with an agent. They've made that decision. They've saw, it's, you're not gonna, a random stranger is not going to change their mind. So when you call them, with the psychological goal of, I'm gonna convert this FISBO, I'm gonna handle the objections, I'm gonna you know, turn it into a listing appointment. You're ice skating uphill, right? You're doing the one thing, or you're trying to do the one thing that they've already decided they don't wanna do. Why bother? Why, why do that? And so when you, when, and then you, you don't get the results you want, and then you, you reinforce the negative bias that you went into it with because you're not having results, but in fact, tactically, you're just not doing the right thing. You're not having the right conversation. So here's two ways that you can have a conversation with a FISBO or a landlord that will be far more beneficial for you than let me try to convert them and make them do something they don't want to do. Okay. First things first, have a buyer in mind and go actively pursue the FISBOs and the landlords that you believe their property already matches your buyer's criteria, right? Not only do I have a fiduciary responsibility to put my client in the best possible position, if I can find them an off-market property that meets their needs and there's no competition and they don't have to overpay and they don't have to waive the contingencies, I'm doing the right thing for my buyer client. 
But in the conversation with the seller, I can tell the seller, hey, Mr. Fisbo, Mrs. Fisbo, take a breath. I'm not that agent. I'm not trying to convince you to list with me. I just want to have a conversation about your house so I don't waste your time. It sounds like it's the right fit for my client. Would you be open to working with me if I brought you a buyer and the right price? Oh, well, yeah, sure. We'd be open to that. Okay, great. Now let's have a conversation about your house, right? And now we're just going to build rapport by asking the right questions, right? How long have you had the house? When, would, when did you do this? When was the last time you updated it? What's your plan for when you sell? What are your goals? How maybe I can help you with that. And you're just going to build the rapport. And, and while you're building the rapport, you're getting the knowledge you need to go back to your buyer and say, hey, bud, found this great deal. Three bedroom, two bath over in this area. Here's the price point. It's not even on the market. There's no competition. You want to take a look at this thing? Well, heck yeah, I do. Call the FISBO back. Call the landlord back. Hey, really appreciate your time. Uh, my buyer would like to see this property. When can I schedule a showing? Tuesday, Thursday, what's good for you? And obviously there's some, there's some super tactical stuff in there, right? Don't ever show a house to a buyer until you've got a, a, a signed commission agreement from the seller. For sure. I made that mistake when I first got into this business. It was an expensive mistake. 3% commission on a $380,000 deal that I did for free. Learn from my mistake. Don't do that. So in part of your conversation with the seller, whether a landlord or a FISBO, you're going to have a conversation that sounds a little something like, hey, listen, I really want to bring my buyer. It sounds like a great fit for them, but I can't bring a perfect stranger into your house without your permission. I'm going to need that in writing. What's your best email so I can send that permission slip and you take a look at it in advance? Right. The, the permission slips pretty straightforward. I, Joe homeowner is going to let Walt Key show his client, Joe Smith, my property at 123 Main Street. We're under contract in X amount of days. I'm going to pay X percent commission. I'm going to fill all that out in advance. I personally like to use 90 days and 3%. And I'm going to send that over to the seller and say, hey, as promised, right? psychology, as promised. I told you I was going to do something. I live up to my promise. So feel free to drop that nugget in the email as promised. Here's that slip I need you to fill out in advance. Look it over. Ask me any questions at all. I'm going to need this sign before I can bring the buyer to your house. I've only had one time short of the seller who literally said she wanted to work with me. And then I handed her, I did the paperwork wrong and she, she didn't pay me. Other than that one time, and I learned a great lesson from that. I've only had one FISBO even question the commission once. And she said, well, you know, what if, what about like a two or a two and a half percent? And it was a very easy conversation, right? I said, well, listen, I respect the fact you're trying to save money and that's probably why you're selling it on your own. But you have to understand that in addition to representing my buyer, I also have to assist you and make sure you understand all of the legal nuances that go into getting this thing closed smoothly so that you can collect your money and move on to the goals you have. So I'm actually doing twice the amount of work, but I'm not trying to charge you double. Yeah. Doesn't that sound fair? And they were like, yep, got it. Let's do the showing on Thursday. Send that over to me. I'll have the buyer ready. And we closed the fantastic deal. Everybody was happy. I was a veteran buyer in a hot Florida market. They couldn't compete. We got a great deal. Seller got to sell their house. They were happy as clams. And guess what happened? The seller went into my database. They're on my follow-up campaign forever. When Aunt Sally says, I need a realtor, I'm thinking about X. Even though I didn't get the listing, 
I got paid from the deal. And now that Fizbo becomes my referral partner because of the way we built the relationship. And so you got you to change the mindset a little bit. You got to change the psychology about why you're calling and how you're calling. You'll get higher ROI on your time for that stuff. Yeah, I think one thing to point out too, just from fellow caller to fellow caller, is your tonality there is very good. You're, you're having yeah. great tone inflections and those things start to matter when you're trying to persuade oh, somebody to, you know, if you're coming in monotone or nervous, these things land very differently than if you've rehearsed yes. those lines to, to bring the ups and downs of your tonality and to express a deeper level of confidence. Yeah. So let's touch on that for a minute. Cause you, that's a really, really great point, right? How you have the conversation truly does matter. And here's what I tell people, right? I, I have scripts that I give people when they buy my book. I have scripts from my coaching program. You don't have to use my scripts. But this is what I tell people about scripts. Think back to high school English class, right? The teacher says, everyone's going to write a book report on Romeo and Juliet. Go read it. Boom. What's, what's due before the book report? There's an outline that you're yeah. going to have to write, right? Yeah. And so the outlines are 98% the same. Every student's going to draft the outline because it's just the construct, right? It's just the framework that we're going to tell the story through. So they're 98% the same. Your scripts are just a framework. They should be built properly so that a conversation can flow the way it needs to. But here's the thing, right? If I say y'all and you say yuns, you would never say y'all. Change the words. Say humans. It's okay. Make it your own, but keep the framework. And then here's the other thing that's wildly important. And people laugh at me when I tell them this until they go try it. And they're like, holy crap, that works great. If you don't have a trusted partner, be it a, a family member, a relative, another real estate agent that wants to grow, that is willing to jump on a call with you for 30 minutes on any given day and just practice having the conversations, one, you need better friends because somebody should hook you up with that, right? Go get some more friends. But two, here's a little tip that you can, it's actually absolutely effective. Take the framework, take the script, get it how you want it and tape it to your bathroom mirror. And every time you go into your bathroom, right? Close the door so your family doesn't think you're a psycho talking to yourself. Every time you go into the bathroom, before you leave the bathroom, stop, take a deep breath, look at yourself in the mirror and practice the conversation with yourself. And here's what you're going to find very, very quickly. You ingrain the framework of the conversation in your head. And so now if I have a conversation with a FISBO and they say something that I wasn't anticipating, it doesn't matter because I know the framework. I know we're going to move this conversation through to a logical conclusion where I have their contact information, their permission to follow up, their permission to show a buyer, their permission to do a little free marketing on their behalf just so I can drum up more buyers, right? I know my conversation is going to have that flow. So if they say something abnormal, it doesn't even phase me, right? I just say, yeah, okay, great. Makes perfect sense. And we talk about that for a moment and we keep going with the framework. So when you have that script, first, make it your own. And then second, you have to practice the conversation until the framework is ingrained in your head. And that will change the dynamic of how you have the conversations. You'll see a huge spike in ROI when you ingrain that framework in your head. Absolutely. And to add to that too, like there's this, uh, a trick that copywriters, the people that write sales copy do, and they write their copy every single day. And that's something that when I was learning, I found to be very helpful. Speak it out loud because you need to practice tonality and yes. you need to, and then as you write it too, like it's just, 
it's really easy to see the nuances when you're when you're saying it and when you're writing it and you get to see like okay here's the thought process here's the framework so i really appreciate that so yeah. let's talk about the agent that doesn't have a buyer or never wants to work with a buyer how do they approach for sell by owners wrong no. <laughs> no, yeah. so here's the cool thing about about fisbos if you do this right you can create a perpetual cycle of business that you'll never have to pay for, right? So again, FISBOs and landlords as our theme. Let's say I have no buyers at all right now. I'm brand new and I have zero buyers. I moved to a brand new market. I've done that twice, by the way, Japan to Florida, uh, Central Virginia, Central Virginia to Florida. Didn't slow me down and, and it doesn't have to slow you down. So let's say for a minute, brand new agent, brand new market, no sphere, no buyers. Call the FISBOs, call the landlords. Hey. Would, would you be open to working with a buyer's agent if I brought you a qualified buyer on the right price? Great. Let's talk about your home. Da, 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 da. What about this? What about that? How old is the roof? What are you going to do? What's your plan? What's your goal? At the end of that conversation, before you hang up, just ask this simple question. Hey, this was really great. I appreciate your time. Would you mind if I did some free marketing on your behalf just to see if I can't drum up some additional buyers for you? They're not going to tell you no. Right? You don't really even have to ask, but it's just a courtesy because it helps you solidify the relationship. That's why we're saying it out loud. And they're going to say, yeah, that'd be great. Sure. Absolutely. Wonderful. Thanks. Go into your sphere. Go onto your local area community Facebook groups. Get into your state and county and city specific real estate related groups. Get in those groups where those people are talking and, and, and looking at real estate. And let them know that you have an opportunity, right? You can't market a listing that isn't yours, right? Don't violate your, your rules. You can't talk about the address, the seller, the, the price exactly. But you can market an opportunity all day long. Hey, guys, if anyone's interested, I bumped into an off-market opportunity. It's a 3-2, roughly 1,500 square feet over on this side of town in the low threes, in the mid fours, in the 500s. If that sounds like something you might be interested, shoot me a note. The buyers that reach out to you, they're reaching out to you because that meets their parameters. Great. Now you got a buyer to go take to the FISBO. Have a conversation with the buyer, screen them properly, right? Just like you would any other client. How long have you been doing this? Do you already have a lender? What's your interest rate? Creek wall, right? And then say, okay, great. Well, listen, I'm not the same conversation, right? I, this is off market. And so I'm not allowed to take a random stranger into another random stranger's house, right? I can't legally do that. So I will need to put some paperwork on file, buyer rep agreement for this property before we go. I'm going to send that over to you. No big deal. We'll get this going. Then I'm going to get back on the phone with the FISBO or the landlord. Hey, great talking to you last week. I got a buyer who wants to see your house. When can we set it up? Boom, boom, boom. If it doesn't work for that buyer, Go find another FISBO, go find another landlord, keep calling them. And as you do this, you will do deals right now business. I will close deals now. And you will build pipelines of future business because you're acquiring new buyers with new data, new needs, which give you a reason to then go look for more FISBOs and landlords to close those deals. Sometimes you find one on the MLS, right? You picked up a buyer because it was an it was a FISBO, but what they actually need, they find on the MLS. Great, close that deal too. Nobody, nobody cares. But it creates a perpetual cycle of business that costs you nothing but your time to have great conversations. Absolutely. So that's what I would say to an agent with no buyers. Go put buyers in your pipeline and turn them into sellers. 
And then later they're going to turn into listings because your buyers sell usually statistically within five to eight years, they're selling and they're referral partners for you. We could do a whole podcast segment on for sale by owners alone, but I do want to touch oh, yeah. on landlords. Uh, tell me about how you pursue landlords and what that business looks like. Yeah, man. I love landlords. So again, I'm an investor, right? I speak their language. I understand the dynamic, very similar conversation, very similar construct all around, right? Hey, is this the owner of one, two, three main street? Yeah. Who's this? And this is Walt Key. Is that still on the market for rent right now? Yes, it is. Great. Well, listen, like I said, my name's Walter Key with EXP Realty and I don't need to rent your house, but I was just wondering because I have a, a pool of buyers and I am always trying to find my clients the best house. Sounds like yours might be a good fit for a couple. Would you be open to the possibility of potentially selling your investment property if I brought you a qualified buyer in the right price? Right. We're same conversation with the FISBO, just slightly different, right? Now, here's the cool thing about investors. If you don't, if you know, you know, if you don't know, I'll give you a tip. We are usually very analytical mindsets. It's black and white. What are the numbers? If it makes sense to me, let's go. So when you ask this, this seller, would you be open to the possibility of potentially listing your property or, or selling your property? If I brought your qualified buying the right price, they're going to say, well, I don't know. What's the right price? I'm glad you asked that question. I'd love to have a conversation about that. If I can meet you for 15 minutes and get a feel for the condition of the house, I will happily send you a free courtesy CMA so you know exactly what the right price is. And if that makes sense to you, I'd love to do a deal with you. And if it doesn't, no problem at all. It costs us all 15 minutes of our time. How's that sound? It only goes a couple ways. They either go, yes, that sounds good. When can we meet? Let's run the numbers. And you build a relationship and maybe you close the deal and that's wonderful. Or they say, no. I love my investment properties, their cash flow, and I'm keeping it. Here's what you do immediately. Get excited, right? Tone inflection. Oh, that's awesome. I'm an investor too, or, or I know investors, and I understand the value of a cash flowing asset. Listen, are you ready to buy more? Because just like I called you because I work hard for my buyers, if you want to get on my free buyers list, tell me what a good deal looks like. I'll go find it for you. Now you pick up an investor buyer. You go find other properties off market, different FISBOs, other landlords that that guy wants to buy or that gal wants to buy. Perpetual cycle of business just based on the fact that I'm going to have conversations with people and see how I can best serve them. Yeah, There's no downside to those conversations. Love it. Well, I love how you're going at an angle that produces business on either side. Either you want to sell and we got a deal here or you don't want to sell, which usually means you're happy which usually means there's more business we can Let's go get you. More. Exactly Great right. strategy. And exactly again, right. it's loads all about of the, And the psychology is simple, right? I'm not calling to close a deal. I'm not calling to convert a listing. I'm not calling to handle objections. I'm calling to see if there's a way I can serve this person well. And maybe that's through me bringing a buyer. Maybe that's through them selling their house. Maybe it's through them becoming, doesn't matter how. I'm just calling to have a great conversation to see where it is I can best serve them. You go in it with that framework, your conversation will be great. No doubt about it. Yeah. Walt, I could talk to you about this stuff all day long, but thank you so much for giving up some time, for telling us about your life, your business, your journey as a Navy SEAL. For those of you out there listening, write down something you learned about the FISBO process, write down something you learned about the landlord process, or even the mental toughness needed to get these things done that you learned in the Navy SEALs. Share it with somebody you know so they can hold you accountable because freedom is acquired one action at a time. And if you take steps day by day before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode.